Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. I'm going to have my son take a basket around here. Isaac, you want to get that basket? If you didn't get a handout or if you didn't get a bulletin, you can take one from him, okay? So he's not going to pass it out to you because he's not want to spread any germs. But uh, he'll go around there and get one. It's going to be important for you to get a pen today, get your Bible out, get a notepad or a handout, and uh, take some notes. 1 Peter chapter number 5. Well, there are many people that we can recognize who they are, or at least what they do, by what they wear. Let me put a couple people up here for you. For instance, guys who are dressed in striped pajamas like this are called what? Baseball players, I think. (laughs) Right? That's okay. Yeah, baseball players. And those, I think, are called world champions. There you go. World champ- That's right, there we go. See, there's, there's a Dodgers fan right there. Oh, wrong one. Oh, wrong one. Oh, no, she got the wrong team there. That's okay. Baseball players, world champions in stri- striped pajamas. There we go. How about this one right here? That's a person that's dressed up as a judge. So typically a black, long black robe and a gavel as a judge. And then if you wear silly hair like this, and a silly outfit, usually you're British. You're a British judge. This is a soldier, dressed up like a soldier. And of course, this, these individuals right here are dressed as pilots. So in general, there's, there's many dress codes, if you want to say that, for certain professions. What about for a Christian? What are we to wear that shows we're followers of Christ? Well, if you're in a really cool shirt, church, is it like the skinny jeans? Or if you're in a really conservative church, is it a suit and tie? You know, what is it? Well, our text here in 1 Peter chapter 5 actually commands us to dress like this. 1 Peter 5, 5, look at the middle of that verse. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, the entire church, clothe ourselves. Here's the clothes we're put on every day with humility toward one another. So he's not speaking of actual clothes. He's speaking of putting on the spiritual attire of humility, or you could say this one, putting on the humility of Jesus Christ, his attitude, his purpose, his heart to serve one another. The most important thing that you put on every day is a humble attitude before God and before other people. We're in our series called Humility Within the Church, And a couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 4, where Peter encouraged the elders to lead and feed the church with humility. Last week, we looked at how God commands the church to follow and to serve one another in humility. This week, we're in verses 6 and 7. So would you stand as we read God's word? 1 Peter chapter number 5. We're just going to go ahead and read 5 through 7. Our text this morning, though, will be 5, 6, and 7. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares, all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray. What a blessed text, Lord, to be able to study, to be able to see who you are in this Sunday morning as we gather as your church. And I pray as we just saying this prayer, Lord, plant these truths deep in us and may we trust you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine a child stomping around the house. He's angry. He is grumbling to himself. Maybe he sits in the corner and folds his arms, sticks his lip out. He's mad because he can't have a snack. Anyone got little ones like that in your house or grandkids? And so his mom comes up to him and she says to him, son, I don't like your attitude. That's right. You got it. Your attitude. What does that mean? What does she mean by that? What's what's an attitude? Today we're speaking about genuine humility. What is genuine humility? Well, it's an attitude. So the question is, what is an attitude? In verse 5, we're going to see our first point here this morning is humility is an attitude of lowliness before God and others. So, So what is that? What does that mom mean when she says, I don't like your attitude. What is an attitude? Your attitude really is what radiates out of your inner person. Your attitude starts in your mind and comes out in your words, in your action, in your demeanor. Your, your attitude really is a way of thinking. You think a certain way, and therefore that, lives, that affects how you live. And for that angry child, how does he think? Oh, he's very selfish. He thinks that he's more important and actually his ideas are better than his mom's ideas. And therefore he acts according to those thoughts. That's his attitude. Your attitude is a way of thinking about God. It's a way of thinking about others around you. It's a way of thinking about yourself. And what you think about God and what you think about others and what you think about yourself will affect and determine really how you treat God and how you live in regard to God and others and yourself. I like how one person I heard defined attitude. He said, your attitude is the aroma of your heart. Your attitude is the aroma of your heart. People who have a heart of pride, they emit a stench of pride, right? I mean, you can hear it. They talk about themselves all the time. They like to be the center of attention. They brag. They maybe roll their eyes. They love their opinions. And you can smell that pride. And where does that come from? It comes from a heart of pride. That's what we call attitude. It's a way of thinking that prioritizes me above everyone else. It's a perspective that considers God and all those people around us as people who are there for my benefit, to help me get what I want done in life. That person is there to make me feel better. God is there to make me feel better about myself. And when a person has that mindset of pride, they respond with pride, right? They respond with lies. What do lies do? They they help kind of twist the situation to gain favor for myself. Again, it's me lifting myself up as 
the king of my own heart. They speak negatively about other people. Why? Because I want to gain advantage for myself. I, I put people down so I can lift myself up. They might even use religious words or a pretense of humility. And why do they do that? Well, even that pretense of humility is to exalt themselves. But verse 5 here, we see a command for the church. That is to put on the attitude of, of humility. Remember the word humility, we talked about this last week. That word is a compound word. It's made up of two words, mind and lowliness. And so it's the idea that you have a lowly way of thinking, low thinking about yourself in regard to God and others. So really an attitude of humility. So what is genuine humility? Well, it's an attitude of lowliness before God and before others. And so look at verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with this attitude of humility toward one another. And then he teaches the foundation for humility with one another is humility before God. And so he says, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. In verse 5, that word for, for God opposes the proud. The word for reminds us that you can't separate humility before God and humility before other people. In other words, a person who has humility before God will be a person who has humility before other people. There's no such thing as a person who has humility before God and they're proud around other people. It's kind of like an engine in a car, right? A car moves forward because there's a functioning engine in the car. And, and God's grace moves us forward as we humble ourselves before him. And so humility before God is like that engine in the car. And you can't move forward in humility in the church unless inside you are humble before the Lord and God gives you grace to do so. So notice verse 6. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. So again, that therefore connects verse 6 to verse 5. So let me just give an idea of what I think this, how I think this passage flows. We are to put on an attitude of humility toward one another. The attitude comes from a heart that is humble before God. So humble yourself before God. I think that's what verses 6 and 7 are speaking about. So we talked about that last week, so we don't want to rehash all that. Let's go back. Let's go to our second point, and that is, what is genuine humility? Humility is sourced in a broken will before a God of grace. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you realize that a perfect world is a world filled with humble people? The most humble place that exists is heaven right now. It's filled with the most humble people that are alive. Yes, people in heaven are alive. And the place that has the most pride is hell. Why is it that heaven is filled with genuinely humble people? Well, it's because in heaven we have a clear perspective of who God is. There's no doubt that God is God, and there's no doubt that I am the creature. In fact, in the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, do you realize he created humble reflections of himself? There was no question in Adam and Eve's mind who was God and who was the creature. In their humility, they found God to be their all in all. In their humility, they worshiped God. In their humility, they depended on him for life and for breath and for everything, for, for fellowship, for joy. 
In humility, they enjoyed a sweet relationship with him. In humility, they found their purpose in God, their motives in God, their duty in God, their joy in God, their life in God. And in humility, they submitted their hearts and their wills and their lives to God. That was true paradise. True paradise is humility. And they enjoyed the blessings of humility until pride seeped into their heart. And in pride, they turned and now wanted independence from God. In humility, they wanted to follow their own desires, not God's desires. I'm sorry, in pride, I said in humility. In pride, they wanted to have independence from God. In pride, they wanted to find, follow their own desires and not his. In pride, they no longer saw their need to live in submission to God. No, long, no longer saw their need to depend on God. In pride, they hid their sin. It was because of pride that God opposed them and God kicked them out of his presence and out of his perfect, perfect garden there. And he removed the blessing of humility. And Adam and Eve are a picture, they're real people, but they're also a picture of the horrible, evil darkness of a heart of pride. Each, each one of us was born now into this world with hearts like that, with hearts of pride. We exalt ourselves above the needs of others. We hurt others so we can feel better about ourselves. That's pride. And worst of all, our pride causes us to reject God. We live independent from God. The heart of pride thinks little of God, but thinks much of myself. In pride, we enthrone ourselves in the throne of our own hearts. In pride, we, we live our life to serve ourselves. We live our life and demand everyone else serves us as well. And in our pride, we ignore our sin. In our pride, we believe we're pretty good. In fact, we're probably good enough for God. That's pride. And our text declares this. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Listen, if you have a heart like that right now, God is in opposition to you. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. That is not speaking just of physical death. It's also spiritual death. In other words, God opposes you spiritually and it will happen not just in this life, but it will happen for eternity. But the end of verse five there gives us hope because he says, God gives what? Grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The humility there at the end of verse five is a humility of spiritual brokenness before the Lord. Now you hear the word brokenness like that, and you might think, well, that's kind of strange. Like that's kind of a harsh word, Ben. Broken, God wants me to be broken, yes. He wants our pride to be broken, our wills to be broken before him. He wants us to stop giving excuses, to cease looking to ourselves for wisdom and strength. He wants us to repent of our self-dependence, our self-centered lives. He wants our wills to be broken before him so he can build us back up and exalt us back up by his grace. So genuine humility before God is coming really to the end of myself, coming to the end of myself in brokenness, looking to God for grace. Remember the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? There he is coming before the presence of God. And he was a lying, thieving, 
greedy bureaucrat. There's a couple of those in Washington, huh? But this guy, he actually came to the place where he realized that he was under the condemnation of God for his sin. He broke before the Lord. The Bible says that he lifted up his eyes. I, said, I should say he couldn't even lift up his eyes. He beat his chest. The Bible says he stood afar off and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here was a man who lowered himself in humility. And really his heart was so broken before God. He says, I don't even deserve to look up to heaven. I am a wicked person. And God, all I ask for is grace. All I ask for is mercy. And guess what? Jesus says, listen, that's the guy that gets saved. That's the guy who's justified. That's the guy who's exalted. Because he who exalts himself, you're going to be humbled but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Genuine humility before God is coming to the end of myself and brokenness and looking to God for grace. This past week, we went to um, dinner at someone's house, and they had a, there was a couple there, so Dana and I and another couple, and then they invited this man to come be a part of this dinner. So there's five of us. This guy was a missionary at one point to, to China, he was a professor at a Bible college. This guy had some pretty exalted Christian positions in his life. In fact, he, by his own testimony, said he used Christianity to, to exalt himself up, to, to, to make him to be an important person in the eyes of others. That was very important for him. But behind closed doors, he said he was just fulfilling his own desires, living for himself, using Christianity as a prop for his own ego, and committing adultery. Then his world came crashing down a number of years ago. He lost his positions. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He was completely broken. God humbled him. But it was in this humility that he actually saw the reality of his heart. It was in this humility that he recognized that he needed God to save him. At one point he thought, I'm so bad, God can't save me. In fact, he said this. He said that he had looked at his driver's license or maybe his passport, something. And he looked at it once and he thought, God can't save me. Look, and on there he saw 666 in one of the numbers, you know, in the long string of numbers. And he's like, it can't. he walked outside after being in counseling with someone. And, uh, and, and this guy just told him, you know, here's the gospel, trust the gospel. And he walked outside, a flock of birds came over and on his car. And he said, see, I'm cursed. I'm cursed. It's a proof right there. He was so convinced that he was beyond saving until he was reading the Old Testament and he came across 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 33. And he was reminded of the story of Manasseh. Do you know who King Manasseh was? King Manasseh was a king in Judah. He was the worst king. The worst king. You're like, well, what's the worst king? Think of Hitler as a king of Israel. He performed human sacrifices on his own children to try to gain favor with God. He killed innocent people to make sure his power was not threatened. He practiced witchcraft. He spoke to demons to try to get in, gain an advantage in life. This is a guy, it's pretty bad, isn't he? But listen to the scripture. Listen to what the Bible says. God brought great distress in his life. God pushed his finger on his life. And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 33, in his distress... He sought the favor, the grace 
of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, that's the Lord, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. Literally the worst guy in in Israel, in Judah, received grace from God. How was that? He humbled himself before the Lord. And this guy that we were with this past week said he, he read that story and he thought to himself, Lord, if you can save King Manasseh, you can save me. And the Lord did save him. And God is working tremendously in his life. There is no person, there is no person too wicked that God cannot save. But each person, in order to be saved, must have a heart of humility. It's a heart that's broken in confession of sin, repentance before God, in faith that God is the one who saves. Consider other men in the Bible. Think of David. And David, he was a self-absorbed, self-righteous person. I mean, here he sat on the throne in, in, in Israel, but really he sat on the throne of his own pride until God humbled him. And he says this, he says, God, you're not going to delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offering. Da- David didn't say God, that the answer to his problems was get religion. He's like, it's not, it's not about bringing a sacrifice to you, Lord. It's actually, what does God want? What does God want? The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit. In a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise that. The answer to your pride is not to come to church and sit in a chair or to put money in the back, back there in that box. It's not to recite some ritualistic prayer. It's to have a heart that's broken before God. God says, I will not despise that. I will accept that. In fact, I will give you grace. Would you describe your will before God as broken? Do you hate the pride in your heart that exalts yourself above God and lives as if you are God? And do you see the desperate, do you see the desperate need of grace that you have today, that you need today? Humility is sourced in a broken heart before a God of grace, but also humility is a response of, God, of surrender to God's work. It's a response of surrender to God's work. Look at verse six. Scripture says, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God. That's God's work of providence. So that he might at the proper time, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. That's his work of exaltation. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's his work of love. The humble Heart here in verse six, the word humble, I should say in verse six, that is a command. It's an imperative. And it's also a passive. In other words, it's a, re, it's a response to something God is doing to you. You could say it like this. First Peter 5, 7 is commanding you to allow God to humble you through his work in your life. Let me say that again. First Peter 5, 7 is commanding you to allow God to humble you through his work in your life. So what is the work that God is doing in your life? Well, he says, under the mighty hand of God. What is the mighty hand of God? Well, this is an anthropomorphism. It's a big word. I'm glad I was able to say it without messing up. This basically means that this verse 
uses, this basically means that God, that we are using human characteristics, human traits to describe a work of God. So we know that God doesn't have hands. God, the father does not have hands that he's actually, you know, this big hand from the sky is not coming down like that. Right. But it's a way to help us understand that the work that God is doing with us and in this world is, is personal. He's actually personally involved. If a husband says to his wife, I'll fix that with my own hands. I'll fix that for you. What he's saying is I'm not going to hire a professional. Like I'm going to do it myself. And how many wives would freak out about that in here? Okay. Maybe some, some of you would be like, go for it. Right. But the idea is, is that he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. And so when God talks about his hand, he's actually speaking about his work and he's saying, it's a personal work. I, I care for you. I'm present. I'm involved. And when God talks about, or when the scripture talks about his hand working, we shouldn't think that that's abnormal. Like in other words, it's not like God's not working sometimes and sometimes he is working. It's he actually, his providence extends over everything. Like everything that's happening is a part of the work of God. But this is just actually specifically telling us God is present. God cares. He's directly at work. So when you see the hand of God, you should know that God is personally involved in this. And then verse six, notice it's not just God's hand, but it's his mighty hand. So this highlights that his work is personal, but also it's powerful. It's powerful. The mighty hand of God speaks of God's omnipotence. God can do anything he wants to do, and he does anything he wants to do. He has authority and power far beyond that of any being. He is God. So 1 Peter 5, 6 here, the Holy Spirit wants us to know this. God's fingerprints are all over your life. Do you realize that? Think about your life. Think about what's going on. God's fingerprints are all over your life for this purpose to humble you before God. He wants you to humble yourself before him. I was thinking through different texts of the scriptures of where God talks about his hand. So I thought, you know what? Let's go through a couple of these and look at it. In the Old Testament, New Testament, God regularly uses his hand as a picture of him personally working in individuals' lives. We see in we see in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the Bible says, well, actually, I forgot one. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. The heavens are the works of your hands. So when think about that way. When, when we see creation, we should recognize that God's hands, again, God's work, created this. So we should respond how? When we think about God's creation, how should we, res- we respond? Praise God. We should humble ourselves and praise and say, wow, God, you're amazing. How about this one right here? God's hand directs the decisions of kings and presidents. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Our president, our governor and governors across America, the legislatures are making decisions that affect us. And my personal opinion is that their decisions are going to be very harmful to our country. God's opinion is that some of their decisions are immoral and they're wrong. And God does not approve of their decisions. It's not what this verse is saying here. He's not approving of their sinful choices. They're accountable to God. But also we recognize that even God's hand is so powerful that he can allow presidents to pour out the evil of their hearts into legislation that can affect us. 
And what they mean for evil, or I should say what's morally evil, God actually can turn that into good. Now, how, how in the world does that work? Well, that's in the providence of God, right? But we understand the word of God says that is true. And listen to this. God's mighty hand is directing the future of our country right now. And, but we, I, know, I know many of us, though, we hopefully don't watch the news too much. But you watch the news, you go, oh, I don't like this. So. <laughs> I don't like what's happening to our economy. I don't like what's gonna, how this is going to affect our lives. But let me ask this question. Why would God allow all this? Why would God direct our country? Why would he take like a stream of water of the, the hearts of the legislators and allow their hearts to go this evil way and affect our country in this terrible way? Why do you think that is? What does this text say? He wants us as a country to humble ourselves before him. And actually in God and his mercy, he's bringing our country to our knees. And that's a good thing. God's hand directs the events of our life. Job says this. The hand of God has touched me. Remember Job in the Old Testament? He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost his home. He lost his business because of the hand of God touched him. But you, you read this and you think, wait a second, wait a minute. Wait. Wasn't Satan the one who afflicted him? Wasn't it an army that came in and destroyed? Wasn't it his, his friends and his wife who sinned against him? Like, didn't storms wipe out his home? Yes, but again, God is so mighty that he has control over even that. And again, he doesn't do evil, but he can unleash the terror for a purpose. And what was the purpose for Job? It was so Job would humble himself before the Lord. And he did. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's humbling yourself before God. And so what? I respond in, blessed be the name of the Lord. God's hand gives us our food and our employment there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from the hand of God. So when you eat your food, the reason we pray isn't because we're actually doing some kind of magical ritual, okay? It's not like bless this food and transform the molecular structure of these french fries, right? That's not happening. It's actually, God, thank you for providing this. In humility, you're saying, God, everything I have is from you. And so I'm thankful for this. When you walk into your employment, you should say, God, thank you that you give me this so I can have a check so I can provide for my family. God's hand convicts you of sin. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. It's David speaking of the conviction of sin in his life. God's hand goes and touches inside your soul. And when you feel the weight of the guilt of your sin, you should respond in humility by repentance and calling on the Lord in faith. The hand of God brought judgment upon Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel. Think of all the trials that they went through. And God says it was done to humble them before him. I think about many people in our church. In fact, I just would say it this way. All of us have some type of difficulties in our life, some type of suffering in our life, right? God's hand is upon us. His fingerprints are on that. He's allowing that for some reason. What is that reason? He wants us to go to our knees, to call out to him, to humble ourselves before him, to worship and to trust him. In fact, the greatest, I think one of the greatest examples of the God's providence of his hand in our life was when he sent Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 26, that there's kings, and they set themselves against the anointed, that's the Messiah. And in verse 28, 
to do whatever your hand, that's God's hand and your plan had predestined to take place? Do you realize that God, God's hand directed people, it directed pregnancies, it directed armies, it directed governors and rebels and history to lead Jesus to the cross to suffer and die for our sins. And it was his hand that resurrected Jesus to life again. So the hand of God provides salvation for us, but also the hand of God can save your soul. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life. This is Jesus. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The mighty hand of God, I think, is upon many people in our world. And this is the purpose right here. He wants to save your soul. He wants to show you that you're not God. You need God. You need to look up to him in faith. His hand is the one who saves us. And his hand is the one who keeps us for eternity. Praise God for that right there. And believers in here, you're held by the hand of God securely for eternity because his hand is mighty. So what is true humility? True humility is also surrender to God's work of exaltation, exaltation. Look at verse six. He says, first Peter five, six, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. What's the proper time? Well, it refers to a point in time that God chooses. And what's the promise that God makes? He makes Jesus Christ, James, many other people have said in the New Testament that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, the promise is that God will exalt you. And so the question we come back to then is then, okay, so when is that? Like if I humble myself before God, when will he exalt me? Well, what does our text say? It's in his time. We don't really like that, do we? Because our pride says, well, God, I'd like to know what time that's going to be. When is the timing of his exaltation? Well, sometimes it's in this life, right? Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Took him 40 years before God exalted him to be the leader of of Israel. For Joseph, 13 years as a slave, he believed, he believed God would exalt him, but it took 13 years for that to happen. And sometimes God doesn't exalt us until we get to glory. I think about a friend, some friends that we have in South Carolina. It's a couple that we helped when their marriage broke and fell apart. I mean, it was bad. It was terrible. He was disciplined out of the church. But the husband humbled himself. They both humbled themselves in, in unique ways they had to do that. But, and now God has exalted their marriage. In fact, we were talking to some friends this past week, my wife was, and that couple is helping another couple in their marriage. They're actually marriage counseling now. That's called exaltation, friends. I think about another godly lady we know in South Carolina. We knew her from Wisconsin when she went to a church up there called Brookside that we went to. And then they moved down to South Carolina. Her husband is a proud, stubborn man. We prayed for him for years. And she is a sweet, humble lady. And she continues in that marriage in love and in kindness and in humility. And his heart hasn't softened. This lady keeps praying for grace to restore their marriage. But you know what? It might not be restored. And she might not be exalted until she gets to heaven. So sometimes God exalts in this life. Sometimes he waits to the next life and to eternity. In fact, this is the story of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52. 
wonderful text about the servant of the Lord, the Messiah who is going to come, written 700 years before Christ came. So a prophecy, behold, my servant, the Messiah shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Yes. Isn't that what we want? Messiah. He's going to be lifted up, exalted. And then you go to the next verse and it says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human. Wait a second. Then you go on through the rest of that text and through the rest of chapter 53, and you realize that he suffered and was humbled greatly so much that he didn't even look like he was a human by the time it was done. So Jesus, the Messiah, was humbled before he received exaltation and resurrection. This is actually the Christian life. This is how it works the Christian life, we have humility on earth and we trust exaltation in glory. And last, what is genuine humility? Humility is a response of surrender to God's work of love. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now look at that last phrase and meditate on that. He cares for you. He cares for you. Why? <laughs> Why would God care for us? When the scripture says our life is like a vapor, right? You, you spray that vapor, pff, goes in the, has anyone ever cared about a vapor? You know, it goes and it's done. And, and if we're a vapor, why would God care about that vapor? Let alone like work and, and, and love that vapor. But yeah, he does. He cares for us. His hand is directly involved in your life, directing all things for his glory and for your good. His hand is at work giving you the most precious treasure. What's the most precious treasure that God could give you? And that's the treasure of himself. He cares for you. And the work he's doing in your heart right now, in your life right now, he's giving you himself. And the purpose of Humility and exaltation is to love you by giving you more of him. So what is true humility? Last, I guess it's our last point. Humility is expressing, is expressed in dependent prayer. Humility is expressed in dependent prayer. Look at verse seven. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humility, again, is having a proper view of God, a proper view of myself that results in a proper response. So what's our response? It's prayer. It's casting our cares upon him. Casting your cares, I think here, is talking about dependent prayer, coming to the Lord and casting your burdens and casting your anxieties, casting upon him the things that are weighing you down. The word casting there literally means to throw onto someone else. Or onto something else. The other day I was, um, we went to the grocery store and went out to bring the groceries in. And I was the last one with one of my little ones there. And this little one was going to help me bring the groceries. So they went out and this little one got a bag of groceries and was going to take it. But it was pretty heavy. And so it was on the ground like this. And I didn't see it. I was walking in and I'm about to walk in through the fence there. And I look back and this little one's, you know, dragging the bag. Which is going to be a bad outcome for this little one. But also for this food that's in the bag as well. And so I came over and I said, hey, I, I can help you with that. All you got to do is ask. You just got to ask, right? I mean, daddy's strong enough. Okay. For a bag, right? 
and I care for you. I actually want to help you. Why would a little one like that try to grunt and push and not ask for help? It's pride, right? And obviously, I'm not like condemning like, you're a prideful kid. But it's the idea is, I can do it. I can do it on my own. I don't need help from anyone else. And isn't this how we approach God? Why don't we cast our cares upon God? Pride. Pride thinks and lives as if, as if God is not God, but I am God. It's, it's my mighty hand in pride that says I can save myself. I must control this situation to get peace. So I'm going to control it with worry. If I just think about it enough, like I can figure this out. If my timing works out, then everything's going to be okay. Nobody cares for you like, what's the song say? Like yourself. No, no. Like Jesus. So in essence, what you do when you lack prayer in your life is you replace yourself with God. But God is the mighty God. He's the mighty God. It's his timing and his work and his care in your life. And we're to take that problem. We're to take that sin. We're to take those cares and cast them on him. When God allows your heart to be broken, listen to this. When God allows your heart to be broken, remember that he allows his heart to be broken with you because he cares for you. Humility is expressed in dependent prayer. Show me a person who's full of pride. I'll show you a person who doesn't want to pray. Show me a person who's humble before the Lord. That's a person who cries out to him. Sometimes when I pray, I like to think I'm very visual So I like to be able to visualize what I'm praying. And sometimes I take the problem and I put my hand out like this and I think about the problem and I say, Lord, here it is. Here it's for you. And there's something actually freeing by describing the problem, describing what I'm doing that's wrong and then saying, Lord, but I give it to you and asking the Lord to take care of that. Praying like this, Father, this child in my home, this child who's left my home, they're your creation, And their heart is so hard. They're not turning to you, Lord. And I've tried, Lord, I've tried. But I give them to you. Please, Lord, humble them. God, save them by your grace. God, work in their life. I I cast my child upon you because you care for me. Lord, I I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I don't know what I'm going to do about this relationship or this job or this change. Like, Lord, I've been trying to figure it out, Lord. I've been even awake at night trying to figure it out. But, Lord, that's wrong. But I, I give it to you. It's your life. It's your, my life is yours. I trust you, Lord. Provide for me. I, I give that over to you. God, give me the grace. I give it to you. I trust you. My, God, my heart is heavy with my sin. What can I do, Lord? I, I've tried. I've tried. I'm trying, Lord. Oh, Lord, I look to you. I, I cast that sin upon you. Lord, wash Jesus Christ. Wash it with the blood of Christ. I claim the cleansing that you provide for me. Lord, give me victory in Christ. My heart, Lord, is so hard with pride. I feel guilty. I don't want to confess it because I I think I know the consequences for this. I don't want to humble myself. Lord, I just want to hold on to my own heart. But Lord, I, I give it to you, Lord. I surrender my life to you. I surrender the consequences to you. I surrender what people are going to think about to you. And Lord, I give my life to you. There's something about visualizing that that can be freeing. We're to take our cares, to take our sins, and we cast them on the Lord because he cares for us. What's genuine humility? Humility is an attitude of lowliness before God and others. 
its source in a broken will before a God of grace. It's a response of surrender to God's work and humility is expressed in dependent prayer. I think all of us can confess that we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's pray. I want to give you a time to be able to talk to the Lord. When we hear messages like this, these are times for us to respond to him. And so believer, will you cry out to him and cast your cares upon him? He cares for you. Humble yourself before the Lord right now. I imagine there might be a person in here who doesn't know the Lord as their savior. And you are holding on to your own life and your own sin and your own pride. The Bible says if you call upon the name of the Lord, he can save you. And I entreat you to do that right now. Call out to him. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ, to the blessing of humility. Let's pray. Lord, we surrender our church, our lives to you. Oh, how, Lord, we like to hold on to what we think is ours. We hold on to our cares. We hold on to our sin. We hold on to our pride. We reject you. And, Lord, can we confess right now? We know that, Lord, you oppose that don't want to live in opposition to you. You're our our good, faithful creator. Lord, do what it takes to humble us. Humble us under the almighty hand of God, under your almighty hand. God, we want a humble church because we want a church that's filled with the grace of God. We want a church that lives dependent upon the grace of God. I'm thinking about Maybe someone in here, I don't know who, but I'm thinking that there could be some people in here or maybe someone listening online. And you need God's grace. They need God's grace. So Lord, I pray for them. I pray, Lord, that they will humble themselves today. Your scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Whether it be a child or a teen, a young person, old person, God, those in this room who are resisting that humility, God, break through, break through. Break through to their hearts and may their hearts be humbled before you so they can receive the blessing of grace, we pray in Jesus' name.